financial literacy is really important and learning about finances and themselves and personal finance, about budgeting and saving and emergency funds and mortgages and all that sort of stuff. And a big part of our job whenever we give advice to people is educating them on what we're doing and why we're doing it. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Josh Williamson and you're listening to episode 8 of the Complete Performance Podcast. More than ever, people are struggling with poor energy, suboptimal health and are wanting to perform at the best for everything they want to achieve in their life. Today I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Oren Coyle. Oren is a financial advisor and a wealth manager and this conversation really stemmed out of this idea of deep health that our health isn't just physical we also have the mental aspect we have the social aspect we have the career aspect and we have the financial aspect and in times like today it's very important that we have this just underlying knowledge of our finances and how we can actually make money work for us as opposed to losing money and so this is where Oren came in so please help me in welcoming this week's guest Oren Coyle Oren, how's it going? How are you? Yes, George. How's it going, sir? I'm doing fantastic. What about you? Yeah, I'm doing well, thanks. I'm doing I'm doing very well. It's uh, been a miserable week weather-wise, but I'm doing good, which is good enough. Good enough for me. What <laughs> about you? Is. Have you been busy? I have been, yes. I've been very busy Um, since probably the start of September, actually. Mm. um, I've got a fair handful of cases left. Um, Hopefully, I'll start to wrap up around the second or middle of December, second week of the middle of December, um, get off for Christmas and, and get some stuff done. But as we go through this, maybe some of the examples will come out and it'll be interesting, if nothing else, um, for any for you or for anybody who's watching. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate it. And I appreciate you coming on and giving up your time. It's it's always no good problem. to hear people from the likes of yourself with your your experience and knowledge. So I really do appreciate that. No problem at all. I think um when we originally talked obviously in your line of work and the people that you speak to in the industry that you're in, I think it would be really beneficial actually for, for just the other side or one of the other layers that's there um, for guys in the industry to, to learn about and stuff like that. So I think it'll be really beneficial actually. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, what I was thinking is, you know, you could almost split us, this up into two separate sections. One about, yeah. you know, sort of personal finance. Yeah. And when we, you know, we can get you back on and focus mainly on just, you know, self-employed fitness professionals, because obviously, you know, that can range from people like myself who's doing a lot of online work. It could be people who's doing some face-to-face coaching, but also online, then people who are doing things like YouTube and the social yeah. media type route. So I think having like sort of two separate episodes would be really, really good if if you'd come back on, of course. <laughs> of course, well, no problem at all. That sounds like a good idea. Keep yeah. it clean, as they say. Keep it yeah. simple. Just like the markets. <laughs> well, if only. <laughs> um, Oren, am I right in saying that, that your background originally, or your, your interest was originally architecture, and then somehow you find yourself in financial advisory and, and wealth management? Uh, yes. Whenever, whenever I was in school, I always thought about maybe... <clears throat> I always thought that being an architect seemed like a really fascinating job, you know, like um, not so much glamorous, but I just thought it was at the end of the day when you're younger and you're at school and they're telling you all these different careers that you can have, that what was one that just stood out to me. Um, and it was either something to do with architecture, which I then found out was a really long 
educational route and I thought mm, is that something that I really want to come up to because I was really keen on um you know that technical drawing and how buttons are created and all that sort of yeah. stuff and even now when we travel or whatever still really still like to stop and look at a button if I think it looks nice yeah um and as time went on obviously when you get to 15 or 16 and you start saying stuff to do with money or you start working or you get your first job or whatever it may be this the, the needle started to sway and i've always been a person who liked the idea of money and was interested in how money works yeah. um and so whenever i got to that age i started to sway a lot more specifically towards that mm. and ultimately i think i ended up uh, my initial undergraduate degree was in accountancy and business management yeah. which albeit where i am now i didn't realize it would end up here in some way or form at the time or looking back it was a really good decision because when you think about the likes of self-employed or businesses or whatever, as soon as somebody pulls out a set of accounts or an SA302 or whatever, I'm not scared of it because in reality, once you finish that degree, we became in some way or form part qualified accountants. So it helps a lot. It really does help a lot. But I suppose when you think about, I was always one of them people that thought, what would be a good job or what would be a good industry to get into on a on a strategic basis yeah. <clears throat> obviously money was something that i liked and i knew eventually that money would get me somewhere um doing something along the the um money industry or whatever i thought that would be a really good place to go so i decided to go that route yeah no, that sounds, sounds great it's, <clears throat> it's probably one of those things they come back though and and i was a sim- i was in a similar position where you look at something like architecture and you think flip so many years to to be qualified yet yeah the time you've invested in in, in this career path it's like mm-hmm. it's probably end up this <laughs> <year>. <laughs> i know i was just thinking that about a couple of weeks ago i thought whenever i left school or whenever we were 18 or whatever i done i done an undergraduate degree in accountancy and then and that was in england and then i came back to northern ireland and went to queen's to do a master's in investment management and so after that again I didn't need, you don't need degrees and you don't need master's degrees to be a financial planner. Yeah. You have, there's a very specific qualification that you need, which is basically a level four diploma in financial planning or reg, regulated financial planning mm. or through the Chartered Institute of Insurance or through CISA or London Banking School of, or London School of Banking and Finance. And then I started doing all these exams for financial planning, which took another two and a half or three years. Yeah. And now I'm on the cusp of becoming a chartered financial planner. So I've got maybe two exams left or three exams left, um, which I'm planning on doing next year. <clears throat> and then after that, you've been studying for near 10 years. And so I suppose I could be sitting drawing a building for a development. But I, in hindsight, looking back, I'm really glad I didn't go down that, that route because I really enjoy what I do. I really, really do enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, I think that's part of the puzzle, isn't it? For anyone in the career is if you can find something that you actually love doing and you don't mind putting that time and, and effort into it 100 percent. well i think the, there's a saying that um if you do something you love or if you do something that you're passionate about it's not necessarily that it's easier mm. it's just that the tools that you have in your hands feel lighter have you ever heard that saying before i've heard something along the lines but yeah uh, i totally agree which is, which is exactly that i suppose whenever you actually want to do something it makes it a lot easier to get up and go as opposed to dragging yourself on it or ending up doing something that you weren't exactly hoping to do 
just because of the way we are guided when we're younger. I think it's great to get on these STEM subjects, no doubt about it. <clears throat> but the world is definitely changing. You know this, um, online especially, that that type of career or doing anything online can near enough just remove the need for, for a degree at all. And in terms of whenever we meet new clients and we see new people and we do what we do, you would be very surprised and pleasantly surprised at how many people aren't and STEM careers or going down that normal line. A lot of them are, but it's nice to see every once in a while or more often than seldom that people do things that are a wee bit outside the box. But like the the online personal training and coaching industry is exploding and it's fantastic. Um, and it's brilliant to see that that's achievable now and this day as opposed to 20 years ago when that just wouldn't have been possible. Um, and so whenever people come to us that are in that position, the way that I look at it is basically you've succeeded in doing what you were trying to do. You've created the first layer of what you're trying to do. And yeah. so how do you now leverage that in order to create things outside of that and and release, reduce the, the reliance that you may have on that? Um, and that's really specific to people who are on YouTube people who are um, in heavy or high cash flow jobs. Um, yeah. And so you can earn all this money, no problem. But if you're not doing anything effective with it after you've earned it, then what's the point? Because it's just on one hand and out the other. And that's what our job is. It's, it's to just create that picture or, or create that image for somebody to think, well, if I do that, then I may not have to do this as much. And then as time goes on, I can then start relying on the other things that I've done and not have to keep working, even though we love what we do and, and you love what you do and everybody on, on the online space does it, uh, loves what they do. I think it will be a fantastic place to be. I really do. It's just a game changer in terms of career. So. Yeah. It's almost creating that cash flow to build leverage then, isn't it? That's exactly what it is. And <clears throat> if you think about really specific things like YouTube, right? Yeah. Um, and I know this is getting deep pretty quickly, but whenever you have a big YouTube channel or a big coaching business or whatever it may be, and it starts to get quite big, and then the cash flow starts to come in, and in reality, for people on YouTube and for people who get paid through advertising, because that's effectively what it is, yeah, there's no guarantee that that's going to be around forever. Yeah. And at the same time, there's no guarantee that your demographic will always be there, because if you're a a millennial, for example, giving millennial tips or doing stuff to do with um, the millennial demographic. Once you get the 50 years old, can you continue to do that? Mm -hmm. And is there a chance that tomorrow you could wake up and your YouTube channel could be taken down for violating the policy or whatever it may be? Yeah. And that money's gone, it stops. And so especially those people, um, we would be encouraging them to diversify their, their wealth, as they would call it, or, or their money or their cash flow or whatever, outside of whatever business that they're in. Yeah. So just like an investment portfolio, we use different assets. They create diversity and investments. Hmm. Yeah. So they're uncorrelated. And that's exactly the same thing that you apply to somebody's business or somebody's self-employment or their, or their online activities is just diversifying out so that there's not as much correlation in how you're earning your money versus when you're spending it. So... It's really interesting, actually, because um, yeah. everybody's different. You know that. People are interested in doing one thing, but they mightn't be interested in doing another thing. And the, the, biggest, the biggest topic that comes up 
and these types of situations will generally be property. Whereas it's our job as financial planners, they try and encourage people to get the tax benefits that are available available to them through pensions and ISAs and company contributions and all that sort of stuff. But as we go on, we can we can cover that, you know. Yeah. Um, very interesting. I think you made a really good point there. And it may not be as obvious to probably anyone over maybe 25, 30. A lot of younger people are maybe a little bit more in tune with it. But I think to give people like a real, you know, a realistic example where you can see this very obvious in mainstream is when you have people go on the likes of Love Island or reality shows, yeah. that that's almost just a platform then to build that identity when they come out. So it's, mm-hmm. yes, they know that their their time is limited. So how do I diversify as much as possible and releasing clothing brands, makeup, doing different endorsements, exactly. all of that within that sort of six month period post-show and try and build wealth there as opposed to coming out and doing nothing, then you're back to doing what you were doing before that. Exactly. And I think, especially in them situations, the the strategy that they have is so accelerated. As soon as they step out the door, there's a plan in place yeah. and they follow that plan. And at the end of the day, you can have a plan. A plan's a plan. And hopefully at the other end of it, it'll work out and your benefit. Mm-hmm. And there's sometimes, there's some uh, scenarios where it doesn't for some of those people. Now you'll see that there's always maybe one or two or three people from every year of something like Love Island that end up doing really well and yeah. the rest sort of fade into the background and so whenever you put the plan in place it increases your chances massively and yeah. then after that it's just what happens then and so I, I agree completely because social media especially you know this is massive leveraging platform and if you aren't willing to use your platform online then you're not going to get as far as the person who is so that, that's the long and short of it. You have to be in that game now if you want to excel in that way. And I do that myself. No, I, I think that it's important. And, and no, in some way or form, it's not just about generating new business or getting new clients. It's actually about getting information out there that can help people. Yeah. Because one of the sort of foundations of having an online presence is you give a lot of value away for no reason yeah. um, other than to help people. And so that might make them feel more confident in using you in a professional manner but the bottom line is you're you're helping them learn something that they might have not known um which is that's one of my plans from january i'm i'm putting together maybe 30 30, between 30 and 50 videos on just all the real foundational stuff about financial planning and why you should do this and why you can do that yeah and i'm just going to start rolling them out online from january so people might necessarily have to come and contact me asking a question because it's going to be there somewhere on my page yeah. so you can read through and you can you can find that information for free and some yeah. guys will charge you 200 quarter and under 100 pound an hour yeah um to get that information whereas that's just not what i'm trying to do yeah well i think you're hitting a good point there that you know you can't have this social media platform but the way that i certainly use mine and it sounds that you use yours pretty similar is yes you're giving out this value but it's because you actually care about individuals as well but it, 100%. It, it allows you to build that trust and allows you to for them to realize that this person does know what they're talking about and so if you trust someone if you know that they're they're relatable and especially probably even though maybe online if they are relatively local as well then there's going to be more chance you're actually going to be able to bond with that person as opposed to you know if you don't have any trust in them you're just going to a random shop and being like okay will this guy or this girl working in my best interest yeah well do you know what here's an interesting one right so if 
if you wanted to speak to a solicitor, say, for example, and you walk down the street in your local town and decided, I'm going to walk in the door of this building and I have no idea what they expect. I don't know if the person's competent. I don't know if they're going to gel well with my personality. Are we going to be able to connect on that level or whatever? If you can see that person online for a period of time before that, then you'll, you, it's much different than walking in the door cold. No, you'll, you'll have an idea of who the person is and how they operate and what they're about. And so it would make you feel more comfortable. Um, and it really does work. Yeah, I'm sure in your situation when I would say people ask you a lot of questions on the offhand in the background as well, yeah. and you'll answer them and help somebody out whenever they need it. And I do that a lot as well. And so whenever somebody feels comfortable enough, they come and contact you about something that's private. Then I think that's when people really understand that you really are competent and you really know what you're doing. Um, and at the end of the day, you can do that for free. Like I help people all the time. Um, and I, I encourage people to do it because that's how you meet new people. That's how you yeah. um, develop rapport with people. And that's how you ultimately you help people get there where they need to be. So, yeah, no, definitely. I totally agree. Um, to take a bit of a, a step out, big picture, yeah. my podcast is all about complete performance and people might be asking like, where does personal finance fit into all that? But it's one of the things that I sort of share with my clients over, over the course of working with them that, for a lot of people, if you healthy, it's physical. You know, it's free from disease. It's doing with your body what you want to be able to do. And probably more recently, over the last two or three years, a lot of people are appreciating mental health. Mm -hmm. I always share this idea of you know we have these six pillars of health. You know, we have our our social health, for example. We have you know that this spiritual health, and that's not necessarily religious or not. That could just be like morals and values and principles. And yeah, uh -huh. important to you. But part of that is also like career or financial health as well. And so how important do you think financial health just as a general, not necessarily building wealth, but just financial health in general is for the, the everyday person? I think it's as equally as important as mental and physical, definitely. Because look, all three are correlated in some way. You know this, right? So you can have all the money in the world, but you mightn't be mentally or physically stable. Yeah. You could have the best mental health out there but you mightn't have a great financial health or a great physical health yeah. and you can have a combination of these and interchange them and in some way or form if you think about like a pentagon when you can stretch a point towards a, a certain trait um if you think would you rather be somebody who has a massive spike in one direction or would you rather be quite balanced around the board mm. and my view on that specifically is that you don't have to push the boundary of one thing very specifically yeah but you can create a balance of all three or all six pillars or whatever it may be. And then over time, there's no reason why you can't expand the size of that, those pillars as opposed to really focusing on um, your the financial aspects of your life at the detriment of the others. It's really, really important because you can be somebody who, again, has all the money in the world. And yes, you can be in good physical shape, but it matters how you feel about it. Mm. It's a certain, it's a, it's a certain, like, and whenever you think what people's perspective is on it, whenever people come in, they also at the office and from the outset, um, you learn to be very unassuming, by the way, from the outset, you might think, oh, this is uh, a, somebody who looks after themselves. Mm. Um, they might be driving a nice car. Um, they might be in good shape. They might have sort of nice, um and sample 
finances across the board. Like they're they're doing well. They're not they're not in bad shape. They're not in amazing shape. But how they feel about that whole situation can really have an impact on them. And see, when it comes to money, it's really strange because perspective is massive. So somebody could earn fifty grand a year and feel on top of the world. And there could be somebody else out there who earns 200 grand a year and be down in the dumps. And so our job and my job, especially, there is a level of financial counseling, if you want to call it that. And you're trying to bring people's perspectives back in line with where they should be, like a reframe is what you would call it. Because somebody could come in and say, I earn five grand a month and my outgoings is okay and I don't have a lot of debt and so on and so forth. But you know what? that's not very good. And then it's my job to say, well, here, let me give you an example of somebody who's in a bad situation. Yeah. And then straight away they go, geez, they sit back and they think it's not that bad after all. And so it's, that's a big part of it is managing expectations and trying to get people in the mindset of what they're trying to do with their money. And then ultimately that will help benefit them in their, and their mental and physical states as well. Cause they can stop worrying about it and work as, focus on their body or focus on how they're feeling about their situation so really important yeah I mean, that makes sense yeah I'm, I'm really glad you said that Oren, because a lot of the times that just the domain that i work in it would i would mainly focus around physical mental social health but it, it ties into everything that you said as well because sometimes people will will sacrifice those other pillars so they'll they'll stop going on nights out or they'll massively produce some or they'll They'll be really restrictive with their diet or, you know, if they make a mistake in their training or their diet that they beat themselves up and that affects their mental health. And that's the yeah. way I sort of explain it is that you have those different different pillars, but pushing too far in one direction is likely to affect other things as well. Um, and- uh, well, you know yourself, obviously, there's periodic cycles where one is pushed on more than the other. Yeah. But my, my view, and I'm sure yours is, that you have to try and over a period of time maintain that balance. So if you work really hard in your physical for six months and then think, well, now I can maintain it and then I can focus on something else yeah. as opposed, or well, I think, I don't know what your perspective is on it, but sometimes there can be people or individuals or whatever who might try and focus on all three at the one time. Mm-hmm. And we're all guilty of doing things like this. It's, it's human nature, obviously, but um, your job will be to manage that situation from the physical and the social and the spiritual and all that side mm. in order to get people on an even playing field, basically. Um, yeah. And that's where I think everybody should be. Yeah, definitely. Um, no, I, I totally agree. And one of the things that I think is really interesting when you talk about finances is that, you know, it, it doesn't matter at what stage of your life, but usually at some stage, probably maybe your early 20s, maybe late 20s into your 30s that you know, when you're getting a credit card, you're maybe looking for a mortgage, you're you know, talking about your credit rate and all this here stuff. Maybe the first time you go to buy your first mobile phone and you're paying monthly and someone's like, oh, I can't give you this because of your credit rate and X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Uh-huh. You always hear that, okay, well, why don't you teach this stuff in school? And something that really has stood by me in a long time was that someone said to me that whenever you get your first paycheck and you see your taxes deduction, you'll understand taxes very, very quickly because... It's your own yeah. money. And uh-huh. like, it's your own money. You're like, right, now I'm, now I'm interested in it. I wasn't interested in algebra or anything in school, but when it's my own money, my time that I've worked for, I'll understand very, very quickly how taxes work. Uh-huh. 
what what's your what's your thoughts on on that set of things? Uh, how they teach it in school and about taxes and stuff. Yeah, and, and just just everything. I guess the the knowledge or lack of knowledge and lack of education around just personal finance. Well, the first thing is that over the last few years, which you've probably seen, mm. financial education has been starting to be promoted a lot more. Yeah. And I don't know, especially if it's from inside the education structure, but there definitely seem to be movement in, in the schools trying to educate children more on managing their money. Um, but personal finance is a different thing, all the yellow and taxes and so on. And to be honest with you, the knowledge, I don't know if this is going to be controversial or not, but the knowledge that we're taught when we're younger, that we learn when we're older, is what differentiates the classes of people. Mm. So you can see that if somebody, say, for, I'll give you an example, middle class, somebody who has went to university or got a skilled trade or whatever, got a good job, earned a decent loving, not too high, not too low, probably higher than the median and the and the national median. So like, the average wage in the UK is probably between 30 and 35 grand a year. Mm. This might be somebody who's earning above that 50, 60 grand, right? Yeah. And so they'll get to a point where they'll do all that. They'll buy a house, get a car over a period of 20 years. They'll save some money, pay off their mortgage, yeah. pay on their pension. And by the time they get the 60 years old, they might have no mortgage, a couple hundred grand in a pension, yeah. 50 grand in savings or 20 grand or whatever it may be. Um, and they're they're very comfortable, right? But the differentiation the differentiation between that person and the person who then starts to move under the the upper middle class and up the ways is how are they leveraging what's out there, yeah. i.e., financial planning to um get themselves ahead of where they would be. Um, yeah. and that's a big part of our job. But in reality, and this might sound controversial again, but countries need classes in some way or form mm. no there are, there's always going to be a lower middle and upper class in every country out there yeah. um obviously the gaps and the, the wealth gaps in different countries is obviously exacerbated when you go out and look at the developing economies you have really 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 wealthy people in the country and then really 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 poor people and obviously our country thank god has has created some sort of minimum standard of living whatever that may be minimum wage and all that sort of stuff but in some way or form, all countries need those demographics in order for the system to work. That's mm. how it works. So let me give you an example. Um, somebody who earns 100 grand a year pays three times as much tax as somebody who is a basic rate taxpayer. Mm. So if you're a higher rate taxpayer, you can pay a lot, you can pay a lot more money out of your, your earnings than somebody who's earning the basic rate. But then that money then is filtered back into the system and that money is used for other things. Yeah. And that's why they always say that middle-class people are always the most affected in periods like we're experiencing now because they've done everything right. They've done all the things that they were encouraged to do. But when it comes to periods of recession or high interest rates or whatever, they are the ones who get knocked the most because they have a mortgage. They might have other debts. They're still working. They're paying tax. They're getting caught for higher interest. Their mortgage payments is going up. And so in schools, they don't teach that because it's not, not I, I'm trying to figure out a way to explain this. Um, they should teach it, but they don't because my view on it is that there's definitely an agenda there and, and at the highest level to keep the country within that structure in some way or form. Are you with me on that? 
yeah. do you know what I mean? Right. I don't really want to come out and say that directly because I don't know if it's I, it's an assumption on my end. That's that's my feelings about it. But one of the reasons why I really enjoy financial planning, wealth management, whatever, is because you can actually give somebody the chance to step out of the bracket that they're in and move up the ways. Mm. Um, and so many people think once they see the name of our company um, and it says wealth management on it, or once they hear you're a financial advisor or whatever it may be, they think instantly loads of money. And look, that's honestly not always the case. Yeah. Financial literacy is really important and learning about finances and themselves and personal finance, about budgeting and saving and emergency funds and mortgages and all that sort of stuff. And a big part of our job whenever we give advice to people is educating them on what we're doing and why we're doing it. Yeah. Because we don't we don't take orders per se. That's not our job and we're not allowed to do that. We have to assess a situation based on somebody's circumstances and what they're trying to achieve. Yeah. Somebody doesn't walk in the door and go, I want to do this, this and this. They can do that, but it's I've never done that for anybody and, and, yeah. and I've never seen it done for anybody in the five years that I've been in the industry, right? Because once you get to that level, you really have to be what's called like a professional or a sophisticated investor, right? But instead of going, I'll bring it back to the point. I think they should teach it in schools, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's there's definitely a societal thing where at the end of the day, if everybody in the country was rich, then the country would be jam-packed and the government would be full of taxes and the system itself hasn't built that way for now. And I don't know if they're trying to move it that way or not, but in reality, every time one of these periods of time comes along, it seems to have a negative or an adverse effect on our, on our society as opposed to a beneficial one. Yeah. And I honestly think that, albeit they don't teach it in schools and it's not part of the STEM curriculum of what they want people to know, mm. at the end of the day, that can always be learned going forward. And there has to be sort of a sweet spot where people should start learning about this. Yeah. And in my view, I think it should be maybe like 16, whenever you should really start to maybe educate your children or thinking about how do we teach students more about this? Because you know yourself, everybody knows that in learning about money comes certain pressures and certain stresses. And you don't want a child that's 12 learning all this sort of stuff about managing their money. When number one, they don't have any. And number two, it's going to be five years before they even see a job. So yeah. why put them under that pressure when they can be learning things that will be knowledge knowledge based um, and teaching the life skills maybe as they just get that wee bit older. That's my view on it. Yeah, I think that's a... That's a an appropriate view about building life skills and then when they're at that stage is just building in even basic things around maybe budgeting when they're 16 and that. You touched on two points there that I think are really important that number one, people should know that they can move through the class system. And when people talk about though, you know, the top 1% make X amount of money, but yeah. that top 1% isn't the same people all the time. It, it changes and people move through the, the class system. Yeah. And then the other thing you sort of mentioned was that cultural element, because if we even take something like um, Jewish traditions versus uh, Catholic traditions, yeah. the, same, the same sort of actual ritual takes place whereby you have like a bar mitzvah or you have a communion. And mm -hmm. everyone knows that money is a big part of that. <laughs> but one of the big differences you see is that within the Jewish culture, because they are so wealthy, 
they do that is almost a rite of passage of yes we'll give money but we also start discussing money we have that discussion around money finances and wealth whereas mm-hmm. i don't think you have that same discussion when it comes to the likes of communion within our country you know 100 percent. look at the end of the day i think money and personal finances is still a very taboo subject in the uk like say if you go to america people in the u.s and people in other countries have no problem whatsoever discussing money, talking about money, asking questions about other people's financial situations. And yeah. I think our culture here is just we're very we're very much more reserved than that. Yeah. Um, and I think that you would only really speak to people about that stuff if you were in a real position of like trust or you have that relationship with somebody where you feel comfortable telling them. Mm. Uh, but if you think that when we get to a certain age when everybody goes to work yes we have a minimum standard of living and everybody has that assumption that when you first get your job you're getting minimum wage um but then as you had 20 there's loads of people out there that start to earn a lot of money from their early 20s because they might be doing a trade they might be doing stuff online and their knowledge is very slim Mm. and then you're at a point where do you know if people in your family are well placed they actually educate you properly and what you could and couldn't be doing or yeah. what's appropriate or um whenever you think about money in a sense that we all build habits they do with how we manage our money yeah and the, the big the good thing about bar mitzvahs and things in other cultures is that whenever they're younger they start to teach them the habits of money very early yeah whereas in our society you don't really my view is well at the end of the day, there's always going to be a curve, like a distribution curve of mm. who's good with money and who's not. But I don't think that most people really start really thinking about money until they're like 25 and they go, right, it's been seven years since I'm 18. I'm through uni. I had a bit of crack. Maybe I really need to start getting my head down now and thinking about where I'm trying to tick things. Yeah. Um, which is 10 years later than half of people in America are talking to their children about it. Yeah. And so it's, it's a, that's a deep conversation. That is a big topic. You know what I mean? Um, and you could talk for hours on that. You really could. It's almost over here that people don't really worry about money until they need the money. And then they're like, right now I need to put stuff in place. But obviously you mentioned earlier that it can come across um, maybe a bit daunting when they hear the likes of yourself being, you know, a wealth manager or a financial advisor or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and obviously we are sort of in this cost of living crisis. So if you take uh-huh. just, the average person say like an average grad coming out of university 20,000 25,000 a year somewhere in there what do you think some of the like the practical low-hanging fruits that people can do straight away that they or they should be doing when it comes to just their their personal finance okay um at the end of the day look the very first thing that people should be thinking about is can do you have a buffer in your life no do you have a cushion and Everybody can see across social media and TikTok and whatever, people always talk about emergency funds and sinking funds and this percentage and that percentage and whatever. But the reality is, as of it, that your emergency funds or the cushion that you need is directly related to what your financial commitments are. And so it's not about earning loads of money. It's not about having loads of money saved in the bank. It's about minimizing what what your expenditure is so that you don't have to be committed to paying a certain amount of things over a period of time. So definitely my first thing would be don't spend money unnecessarily. Everybody needs a car. Everybody needs a house. 
everybody needs all these types of things for their their standard of living but you have to be very conscious of the decisions that you make especially when you're younger mm. um and this is something that's going on right now with property prices in the uk and things like that and interest rates but low-hanging fruit definitely consider how you can keep your month-to-month committed expenditure like what you have to pay for bottom line as low as possible because if you consider somebody that has a take-home pay of 1500 pound a month there's a big difference between two people if one of them has a thousand pound a month of their income committed the hour cost that they have to pay for jars and all this sort of stuff um mortgage or whatever or even stupid things like streaming or all our subscriptions that they have or whatever yeah. versus somebody who only has to come up three or four or 500 pound. Right. Yeah. And I know that's, I know that's uh it can be naive because people might be renting the property or they might be mm-hmm. trying to buy a house or whatever. But aside from those things, really focus on whenever you're committing to a finance agreement for stuff. And even like your internet, as something as trivial as that, just make sure you're getting, the best deal possible that you can possibly find because yeah. at the end of the day, 10, 10 point a month that you can save, if you can save that 10 times on 10 different things, that's 1,200 pound a year. Yeah. And that 1,200 pound a year could pay your rates. It could pay for your car insurance. It could pay for this and pay for that, right? Yeah. Um, leading on to that is have a bit of a cushion. That's the easy, the easiest um, thing to know, bit of an emergency fund. And the going saying is that you should have three to six months of your expenditure as emergency funds, right? Yeah. But our view has sort of changed on that over maybe the last 18 months, whereas you should have a few months of expenditure, but you should also have enough money to um, offset unplanned expenditure, which yeah. is um, if your boiler breaks in the house, if a £1,500 repair comes up or something happens to your car, yeah. you need just that wee bit extra so that um, if something like that comes up, but you can combat it. And if you really think about it, and we can both look back in our lives and everybody else can and think, do you remember the time that this happened to me mm-hmm. unexpectedly and I didn't have the money to pay for it? Yeah. And the way that it made you feel at the time. And you think that if you literally just had that sitting in the credit union or a wee bank account or whatever, yeah, the stress that's connected to all of that is just disintegrated. And that's coming back to the things that we were talking about, physical, spiritual and um, emotional and whatever and so that's the next thing after that is think about how you can grow your income definitely because there's only so much that you can do when you earn 20 or 25 grand a year and yeah. for graduates they'll be thinking well if I go on to this job there's a, a structure in place where I'll progress over the next three to five years and I'll be hopefully earning X amount in a period of years Yeah. Um, that's really important because the bottom line is whenever you're doing stuff with money, yeah. the more you have, the better chances that you have of, of actually getting more money, right? Yeah. Um, and then low-hanging fruit, are you talking about things like ISAs and um savings accounts and things like that? Like the really the really basics of stuff? Yeah, I think look, I think everything you've said there is is great. Um because even I think sometimes I, I certainly find in, in my industry that you know I went I went through a similar let's call it academic careers yourself and done your degree done your post qualifications and that yeah and you come out then thinking that the degree stuff is very basic you know but you realize that that degree stuff is still 
much more advanced than people in the in the general population that they just don't even know about mm-hmm. all of that stuff you, you've touched on is great and there, there's a number of things that I, I would love to delve in a little bit further with that or if you, if you don't mind go for it um i think one of the first things that i really appreciate you saying is that sometimes when you do talk to the likes of financial advisors or wealth management is that you know here's what you should be doing you should be committing you know 50 percent of your income to x y and z and 30 percent should go to this and 20 percent should go into this but the way you sort of framed there was that if you're on minimum wage we're not saying that you have to go and commit the 200 pound a month when you might you might not have that disposable at the end of the month but it could be something as simple as okay well maybe i have disney and netflix for my subscription maybe i'll cancel one of those and that'll go into a savings pot so you might only yeah. save 10 pound a month uh-huh. but i guess the underlying principle there is you're building those solid financial habits in place so that yeah as income grows as you say then you have a little bit more disposable income to put into those savings so yeah. I, think, I think that's really important that you know you're not coming in here saying you need to commit x amount of your income when, when that might be not realistic to some people um but i really like what you said as well about you know having these different funds and you know for me personally that's something i've done for a number of years now probably since it was around 18 ish and yeah. i've always had like i would call them different pots so i have mm-hmm. that that sort of sinking fund pot as you said yeah. you know, for anyone who doesn't isn't aware of that it's it's almost like the things that happen every year anniversaries christmas things like that you put away so that they're not a big expense when they come around mm-hmm. having that emergency fund as you said um i've always tried to do that having a wee credit union account standard direct evidence every week again it doesn't matter what it is but that's almost my if you're uh-huh. boiling time you know uh-huh. and then you might have your your investing account after mm-hmm. that and those are sort of things that that I would set up, and I think that again, it doesn't matter if you're putting five pound a week into those, or you're putting in yeah. five hundred pound a week. It's mm-hmm. all relative to the individual. But I think those things are good to to sort of start on. What would uh-huh. you say? Are you anything to add there? Well, I think that obviously we have to deal and make judgments based on people's circumstances, right? And don't get me wrong, I would, I really would love to be able to help everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously the way that we operate on a commercial business, we have we have minimum amounts that we would deal with when we deal with people, which is grand, right? That's a, that's irrelevant. But even in people, if people come to see us and they say, look, I just can't come up to that right now, I have no problem saying, well, here's your alternatives if you want to do it yourself. Because I don't necessarily think that it's about the money. I think it's about the habit. Because if you think like, if you could start doing something when you're 20, and you can discipline yourself, even if you're putting away 50 quid a month on the on the your credit union or whatever, and do that for 10 years. Like that's a seriously strong habit that you've just built. And if you can do that from your 16 and you're working and you do 10 point a week, albeit that it mightn't feel like a big monetary one at the time, in terms of psychology and, and thinking towards the future, it makes a massive difference because in all walks, you just want to avoid lifestyle inflation which is a really big thing at the minute it's yeah. when you get a pay raise your lifestyle rises to meet that and yes i do agree right that when people work hard they go to university and they spend time learning and they're slumming it as i call it whenever they're a student that for a period of years after you come out of university depending on where you're at you have to bring the balance back to normal and go back to life a wee bit enjoy your life a wee bit but there comes a point that if you 
leave university and start a grad job at 25 grand a year, say in IT or software development or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And then five years later, you're earning 100. At some point, the buck has to stop and you have to say, well, what am I doing to give myself a nice lifestyle because I deserve it? And then what's being trouble? So in terms of the savings accounts and stuff, um, I agree with you completely. And the way that I see it is that you should have, we had this conversation the other day at the office, but you should have your own current account. And this is this is basically just a, a standard structure. Your own current account. And then you might have another easy access bank account with the same bank, like an e-saver or a flex saver or a regular saver or whatever. And that means that if you don't have enough money in your current account, you can you can dump in and you can move some money out. But then after that, obviously you might have your sinking funds, as you said, but the best way to combat dipping in and out of money that you have is the access and how quick you can access the money. Yeah. And that's why I personally think the credit union's brilliant too, because yeah. the credit union it just isn't as effective. And if you go, well, I need 50 quid for something in an hour's time, it's not coming for the credit union. Because <laughs> if you try and take money out of the credit union online, you're not getting it until the day, the next day or maybe the day after. Or you'll have to go down to the, the building physically to get, to get your money, right? Yeah. And so that puts you off actually taking money out of it. Yeah. No sweat. That's grand. And then after that, obviously, when you start putting money in the investments and things like that, the process of actually taking money out of them yeah. could take up to five working days. And yeah. so you're never going to be in a position where you're going to go, I need money today. I'm going to have to take money out of those things. Yeah. But it's unlikely because. By human nature, we'll avoid that because it's the most inconvenient thing to do. And so as you build those layers up, you'll get to a point where you'll say, well, here's my my monthly income. I have the wee side pot in case I need anything instantly. And then after that, I have the the sort of longer term savings. And that was the conversation we had yesterday in the office, which was what is the difference between emergency funds and longer term savings? And so that is the answer. You can't save a whole pot of money in the background. Use it on a frequent basis yeah. for things that come up. That's not long-term savings. That's your emergency fund. Yeah. And so you only really need, depending on your lifestyle, but you probably only need two or three grand in an emergency fund in case anything comes up. It's very unlikely that one day something will come and you'll need five grand that day. It's just, yeah. it's unlikely, you know that. Yeah. Um. After that then, as I'm putting this money away and I know this is for me maybe buying a house in five years' time or I want to do X, Y, and Z in five years' time yeah. or I just want to put away money for the sake of it, for my children's sake or whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, and if you have that sort of setup, it means that the longer-term savings is at the very back of that line yeah. and so you don't go for that just as much, um, which is really, really, really important and it'll just make your life so much easier. That's that's the main thing. It's not fun. You know what, crack? It's not fun putting this in place and come up there for a period of time because you feel like you're not getting anywhere. Yeah. But once you get a year or two down the line when you've built that wee bit of a cushion and maybe a wee bit of more savings or whatever it may be, you will feel 50 times better Yeah. because half the problems that we have are to do with money. So if you can control that a wee bit more, it'll just make your life a lot easier. So that's my view on it. No, I, I, I totally agree with that. I think that's that's a real, real good approach to all of that. You mentioned something there, Orn, about you know obviously when when we do come out of that sort of graduate level job, we yeah we do want to enjoy life a little bit more, 
And I think, as you said, a lot of people don't sort of reel it back a little bit. And I think one of the biggest mistakes, obviously, I'm not a financial advisor or planner or anything, but I've got yeah. I've got enough of a knowledge base and I, I can observe people. But one of the biggest mistakes I see is that people increase their lifestyle and their spending as their, their income increases. And yes. so although they may have Although they may have just say for toxic, say when they're a graduate, they've got five hundred pounds at the end of the month for say what they spend whatever they want. Even though they might be earning sixty grand a year, they still only have five hundred pounds at the end of the month because their their lifestyle is increased in line with that. Yeah. And why they can't they can't save or invest for twenty or thirty years down the line because uh-huh. at some sort of stage you have to, you know, buying more things isn't going to make you more happier. And investing in your future self is probably going to be more beneficial for you. Mm-hmm. I do agree. Um, it's a really interesting one, right? Because again, this all falls to dem- demographics, right? Because say, for example, if you compare Belfast and London, 60, 60 grand a year in Belfast is a lot different than 60 in London. Yeah. And so when it comes down to it, this is where it comes back to, are you trying to be as effective as you can with what your essential expenditure is? And are you just come out of this stuff that you didn't really need in the first place? Because even when you're making 60 grand a year, 70 grand a year or whatever, it all comes down to being conservative. And that's the way that I, I approach financial planning, right? It's yeah. If somebody comes in the door and they earn 60 grand a year, I'd be like, well, I would rather see you put two or 300 pound a month away, which is 5% of their income, which is not that much gross income. Like yeah. That's really conservative. And do that for 20 years, flat, concrete, no breaks. I'd rather see you do that and come in and say, well, I only put a thousand pound a month away. And then after a year, you go, no, I can't do that. Yeah. Two years down the line, you do it again. Because conserv- being conservative is one thing, but it's structure that really makes a difference. Yeah. And when I meet people, they'll say, well, no, what, what do you think that I should do? Do you think I should put away 500 pound or a thousand pound a month or put this amount in my pension or whatever it may be? And my answer for everybody, unless it's to do with a business, which is completely different, right? For tax purposes, that's different. This is the do way after tax income is be conservative and start at the lowest point possible, which could be £250 a month or £200 a month. Yeah. And as time goes on, if you accumulate extra money or excess money or your income increases, then you can obviously flex what you're doing then to meet those needs yeah. as opposed to committing or over committing. And do you know what? I my clients right around Northern Ireland, like in Scotland, whatever, on average annually now at this point pay in three hundred grand a year all together of regular payments on the investments and pensions. Yeah. Which is a huge amount. And that's only across that's not even a hundred people. So yeah. that's a combination of people paying on the ISAs every month for their pay, self employed people paying on the pensions, yeah. um, companies paying on the pensions for their directors, people paying on the Juniorizes for their children. Yeah. And in the in the very beginning, whenever I started giving advice, it was it didn't sound like much. But if you think if you're putting away two hundred pound a month, that's two thousand four hundred pound a year. That's twenty four grand over ten years, mm. and forty eight over twenty years. And then obviously that money can grow as well in that period of time. Yeah. And so, are you willing to give up two hundred pound a month? They potentially have a hundred grand in twenty years time. Yeah. Instead of having to try and save a hundred grand first and then do something with it. Yeah. So 
if you think the snowball effect, just it's it's huge. But and I'll ask you the question. So, would you rather buy a new pair of shoes every month for one hundred and fifty quid? There is people that do that. I don't do it, but there is people that do that. Or potentially have eighty or ninety grand of tax free money in fifteen or twenty years if you just went. I don't need that pair of shoes. It's massive. It's crazy. Like it really is crazy. And there's a who was it said there was somebody famous that gave a quote. I think it might have been Bill Gates or Tom Cook or some. And they said that we overestimate what we can do in one year, but we underestimate what we can do in ten. Yeah. And same method applies. Yeah. Do something. Come at it. Be disciplined. Be conservative because that makes you feel comfortable and helps you be disciplined. Same. Yeah. I'm sure you apply the same principles in your own profession too, and yeah. just leave it alone. Just be patient, and it works. It really does work. Um, and when you think about the physical state, if somebody goes hard at the gym for four weeks and then burns out and goes, oh, "I'm fed up now," I'll take a break for a while. Yeah, you don't want to see that because it's not effective. But if you can see the managing the situation on a more conservative basis, yeah, for sixteen weeks or six months or a year or generally integrating that into their lifestyle. Mm. That that becomes so much more sustainable, and it ultimately will benefit them more in the long run. Mm. I don't know if you agree with that. I one of the things I love about these conversations is that even though we're from completely different backgrounds and don't work with the same individuals, and you know we've never shared our our sort of philosophy on our, our jobs or professions. There's a lot of similar things coming up because what I'll I'll tell my clients if it is about their health or their nutrition or whatever whatever we're talking about is that you know you don't climb a mountain by taking leaps every once in a while you do it by small consistent steps. Good one, actually. Remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the one of the things I always say to my clients is that you know you're always told that uh, you know, what's that cheesy saying you know if you if you shoot for the stars, you'll land on the moon or something like that. And Yeah, uh, I agree. I really do agree, actually. I, I agree with the outcome of it, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I, I do agree that having having those aspirations is important, but I sort of take the opposite approach with, with clients when they're when they're initially trying to build those first habits. It's, you know, aim low enough. And you're always sort of told aim high. But if we set the bar low enough that, and I'm, I'm a, I always, my clients would be like, he says this every week, it's that, um, what could you do in your absolute worst week? And I think the same thing applies here. You know, when you are really stressed about money, what could you invest in your worst week? Could you invest five pound a week? You know, it's the same thing when I'm talking to clients about maybe it's increasing their, their water intake or increasing their, their fruit or vegetable intake. You know, when you're feeling your absolute worst, could you eat half a banana? And everyone's like, well, yeah, of course, it's only it's half a banana. Like I could do that in my sleep. Exactly. People are like, yeah, of course you could invest five pound a week, like only five pound, you know. So we start there, and that builds that confidence and it builds momentum. Then, as you said, depending on the situation, you can sort of scale that up over time. But you're building that initial confidence first, and they're realizing, well, I can do this. And then it's okay. What's the next step? And they start to do all these different things that we're talking about. So it's really good to hear that you know a lot of the, a lot of the philosophy of of what we're doing is sort of crossing over here. But at the end of the day, after you know yourself after a period of time. It's obvious that it works. It, mm. it is very obvious, and you can't ignore the fact that the small ones matter in the long term. And same thing applies if somebody comes on the door and I and they say, "I want to start investing a thousand pound a month," and I'm like, "Whoa, have you ever actually invested before?" Because it's one thing doing something, but once you're in the mix of it, the, in the mix, 
things feel very different from a psychological perspective, especially yeah. physically too. Whenever you're training hard, things feel different. Yeah. Um, from the outset, it might look easy, but it's definitely not. Yeah. Um, and so conservative approach and being realistic, I definitely think is important because mm. somebody could come in the door, right? Somebody could come in the door to you and say, I want to achieve this by X and you might go, well, I think you're capable. That's okay. We'll, we'll work on that. Yeah. But somebody else could have quite a far reaching goal and you think, look, that's just not going to work. I'm not prepared to put, put my name behind it basically yeah. um, or put my support behind it because I just don't think it's appropriate. Yeah. And people would be very surprised, and especially in my profession, if somebody comes on the door and I say, well, that's too much because they're like, well, surely you're looking for as much of my money as possible. But that's not the point. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's I'm probably going to be in this game for 30 years. And for a lot of these people that I deal with, I am along for the ride with them. It's a it's a it's a much more than just a transactional relationship. It is a relationship of of rapport and trust. Basically, that's what it is and peace. So my view on it is, and then to be honest with you, this is how I approach my own life. I approach my own life in a very conservative manner in mm -hmm. terms of if I do X, Y, and Z at bare minimum, I'll be all right in 10 or 15 years or 20 years. Yeah. And then obviously you, you push different boundaries where, where you need to, depending on what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, if you think about the future, right? If we think about the future, say when you're 65, are you going to need 50 grand a year? Mm. Not, not thinking about inflation, but the average 65-year-old now they don't need 50 grand a year. They have a relatively comfortable lifestyle. Yeah. And whenever we're this age, we think, well, I have a mortgage and I have this and I have cars and I have that. And I need 20 grand a year to keep my life going. But by the time you get to that age, you're probably not going to have a mortgage. You'll yeah. have no debt. You'll probably have accumulated some money in some way or form. Probably might have a pension from your work that you work. Um, and you'll have a wee bit of lump, uh, lump sum from your pension, possibly. Mm. And then the state pension comes along when you're 67, which is 10 grand a year, and that's inflation proof. So you don't actually need a whole lot of money to have a comfortable lifestyle in the future. It's not, I need a million pounds so I can retire when I'm 60. It's yeah. just not true, you know, and it's the perspective so far off that yeah. all you need to be comfortable is probably a pension with 150 or 200 grand on it, yeah. a couple of tens of thousands sitting in savings and no debt. And when you think about it from that perspective, anything that happens in your life, whether you have children or grandchildren or things happen to your property or your cars or your going on holiday, you have money to, to take care of those things yeah. instantly if you have enough sort of longer-term savings or some type of investment, right? Yeah. Then you have a pension which supports your income and then the state pension comes along. And so you're, you're grand. You're, you're not going to be flying around or flying to Marbella or Australia or New York every. 15 minutes but you'll still have a, a relatively strong lifestyle and you can support your family and go on holiday when you like and enjoy the finer things in life and that it's as simple as if you do it now when you're young yeah the likelihood of that being the case is so much higher than if you don't start doing it until you're 40 because the pressures if you have 40 and you're not doing stuff for your 50s or 60s you're under big pressure and you're given because you've already spent all the money that you've earned in the last 20 years yeah unless you've saved some of that so yeah. now you're going, well, 20-year-old me has 35 years to get to 55 and do something about it, whereas I only have 15, and then things are completely different. And yeah. at the end of the day, people come to us and they're like, right, I'm 40 now. I've been building my business for 15 years, and 
we're really at a point now where I'm like, things are stable and I need to start thinking about mm. extracting money out of it and what can I do for the future and whatever. And we help those people, but obviously the the aggressiveness and the intensity yeah. of that is just slightly higher than yeah. if they had just come out of the Southern Conservative when they were in their 20s, which is crazy. Yeah. It's just a law of time. And that's that's all I'm investing is time and patience and good advice. Yeah. It's, it's that idea of building wealth as opposed to, you know, yes, you want to build income, but there's a difference between building income and building wealth. And the building that wealth takes time, you know, and definitely where you're stuck. Definitely better. Well, if you think if you think about at the end of the day, wealth wealth's a tricky word, right? Because everybody has a different definition of what wealth is. Yeah. But what our main goal is to help people accumulate money over time. That's the bottom line. Mm. And obviously the most tax efficient way possible. And taxes is a different thing because the leverage that you can get out of taxes, especially with pensions and things like that, are are for another conversation, but when you think about the bare minimum, time is so much more effective than intensity, yeah. especially when it comes to money. So um, I really do believe that if you come at this something for 25 years at the lowest level, you have no problems. You'll have no problems. Yeah. We, we've talked a good bit about sort of that save inside of things and how people can sort of build that. Yeah. I want to go sort of to the opposite side or in just to sort of bring it sort of back close. One of the things that, you know, I, I because, you know, so there is so much talk about building wealth and savings and investing and all of this here. And I've experienced this with, with friends as well when you chat with them. And no doubt you probably have come across it as well. Is this idea of guilt-free spending that people don't feel as if they can buy something for themselves because it comes yeah. with all this guilt. And it's like, well, so should I actually buy this here because I could spend that, I could put that money into an investment and blah, blah, yeah. blah, because you are uh-huh. focusing that long-term. So I guess, what would your tips be around buying something for yourself without that guilt or trying to minimize that guilt? Ooh, I'd be like this sometimes, actually. So um, I would definitely say that not knee-jerk, but impulsive spending is extremely... It can be really bad for you. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with spending money on yourself. And sometimes everybody has that feeling. Sometimes when they're buying something, like, should I be buying this? But the easiest way to get around that is if, say, if you see something and you say, I really want that, go right. It's there. It's not going anywhere. Mm. Give it a week. Give it two weeks. And if you go back and you still feel exactly the same about it, buy it. Yeah. Um, And one of the th- funny things about impulse spending is whenever you have this idea of a sale, right? Um, and obviously there's value in a sale, but somebody says, oh, this is a hundred pound, it's 50% off. You think, oh, I'm saving 50 pound if I buy that. Yeah. It's not true. You're spending 50. You're spending 50, pounds. You're spending 50 that you weren't going to spend 20 minutes ago because of that point. So that's, impulse spending is definitely very dangerous. And impulse spending is something that will be very detrimental to debt, mm. um, especially when you're talking about credit cards. And um, if somebody is, no, in the, in the average day, you probably don't go up the town thinking or go to a shopping center thinking, I'm going to spend two other quid in a pair of shoes. Yeah, it's very unlikely that you're thinking that when you walk out the door. But yeah. for some reason, unless you have planned to do that, obviously that's different. But if you go out for a coffee with one of your friends or your your significant other or whatever and end up spending two hundred pounds in a pair of shoes, is that appropriate? Maybe depends on what you earn and how much money you have essentially but yeah. even at that 
it's still emotional spending because mm. if you've had a bad day and you're walking past a shop and you see something, you think, I'm buying that. Yeah. Then in reality, you've spent money that maybe you wouldn't have spent on your good days or on a day where you were a bit more level-headed. So I would definitely say a good way is give it a week. Depend on the size of it. Say if you're thinking about buying a new pair of shoes or a new pair of sunglasses or something that's a wee bit more than you would be comfortable spending generally. Yeah. Think about it for a while. And then if it's still there and you still have the same feeling about it, go for it. Definitely go for it because one thing that's really big for me is you can't spend your life working yourself under the ground in whatever way or form. Do not spend any money. It's impossible. And one of the things that I always think about is utility when it comes to buying things. So I don't get utility out of buying a new pair of shoes. I don't get utility out of buying um, something that's really fancy or designer or whatever. I've had my thoughts and I thought, geez, yeah, I really want that. And sometimes I've said I, but I still haven't done it because I just didn't feel it was appropriate. And in terms of clothes, especially, that's probably one of the big things is even whenever I try and buy clothes, I try and buy clothes as effectively as possible. And I buy a majority of my good clothes, probably in TK Maxx. Mm. I spend more money on suits and shirts and ties than yeah. I spend on actual casual wear because this is where I spend most of my time at. Yeah. Um, obviously, you feel better when you, when you wear nice and clothes and stuff like that, but I would definitely say give it some time before you buy something and think about if I buy this, what what is it actually going to change? Yeah. So somebody might think, well, I want a new car and they think about it for six months and they're going, well, if I rationalize it in some way, like if I buy this new car, then in some way or form, you know, this appearances matter in some lines of work. They really do. Mm. Um, maybe I should buy this car because it could help me be better viewed and that I could excel in what I'm doing because of that. Or for the likes of your profession, it could be if I have my gym sitting in a nice way or if my studio is, is aesthetically pleasing, then that ultimately can result in me getting more clients because they want to be in a nice place, not a not a backyard, a backyardage. No, that's that's true. Um, and so I try and think about utility a wee bit more than often. Yeah. Um, but again, it's a difficult time. You know, it's with the way things are, the average thing that we would have bought five years ago or four years ago is basically 50% more expensive now. So mm. I just think that in periods of time like this, you have to be really conscious. Yeah. Um, and especially whenever we're in the... In, in the midst of a recession or so they're saying which is probably true to be honest with you then it's I would be thinking I need a reason to buy it not why shouldn't I buy it give yourself a reason to buy something and not why you shouldn't be that's probably the best way to cover it all yeah. um, if you don't have a reason to buy it then why are you buying it that's the bottom line like. yeah yeah no I think that's that's great advice you know really really solid um the thing that I always everybody falls down the stairs once in a while when you think about it. Everybody has their days where they 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 don't do the right thing. But as long as you can, if if you do it five times a month and you can get rid of three times a month, if you do it, then you're saving yourself a whole lot of time and pain. You know what? Everything in moderation is what I was that was what I like to think. Yeah, one of the things that that I use, especially to sort of overcome that sort of guilt, is sort of that, that two times rule so if i and obviously we're not talking about day-to-day -day things like groceries and stuff like that but if it is sort of something that's a bit more materialistic yeah 
if I can't afford it twice, then I'll not buy it. Agreed. That's a good idea. Yeah, um, I've seen that before. Yeah, um, I I can't remember where I picked it up, but it will. It's for me. I think it's the way I do it is if I can't buy it twice, then I'll not buy it. So, it, but if I can buy it, so say for example, I bought this um, laptop this year because I need a new one. So I paid the the cash for it, but then I also invested the equal amount of cash after it. So every time I buy something that that is it's one of the, something more like a materialistic item, I invest the same amount into long term. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that takes it takes a little bit of guilt away from me because number one, it tells me that well, if I can afford this twice, whether that's it could be a per close, but it could be a, a laptop, it could, some it could be some sort of technology. So number one, it says that I have the wealth there to buy it, but number two, I'm also investing in my long term wealth. Yes, I agree. I really do agree. Actually, that's a good idea. It sort of takes. Um, like, that guilt out of it because you're like okay yes i'm indulging a little bit now and that's fine to do oh. but i'm also setting myself up later on as well because i'm putting money away that yeah is mm-hmm. going to pay dividends later on of course i agree and i think at the end of the day even buying a new laptop though you probably get a lot of utility out of buying a laptop so you probably wouldn't have yeah. felt that guilty about it but yeah. definitely um when it comes to things like that if you can if you can well at the end of the day look if you can't afford it you can't afford it if you can afford it once and you really need it, then at the end of the day things is going to be a bit tricky, but you'll get there. But if you have if you have that cushion behind you where you can think, well, if I really needed the, I could buy two of them or I could buy three of them or whatever in a day, that's fine. Um, obviously what you're doing in terms of offsetting it. Mm. If you spend a, a thousand pounds on something that you need or you want, and then you invest a thousand pounds, and in twenty years' time you've made the thousand pound back, then you yeah. just You've just displaced when you spent the money. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But one thing that's really that I've come across a wee bit more often actually is this: the notion of having the ability to buy something, but not buying it anyway. Yeah. Um. And you would come across that, and and a lot of people who would be wealthier when they think, well, yes, I could go and buy a brand new Mercedes, or yeah. I could go and buy. Uh, a Rolex or all the things that generally you would attach to doing well yeah. um, on a material basis and they just say well I could but I, I like I like the feeling of knowing I can yeah. but I'm not doing it anyway because I don't I don't think it's a good idea which yeah. is a really strange place to be and I think you know if you can put yourself in the position where you're going well I really really like that and I would love to have it but I'm still not going to buy it no that must be a really powerful feeling and yeah. as I say, that relates back to if you can put money away for 15 years or 10 years and it grows a bit, yeah. then you will have that ability. Mm-hmm. And when you think about investments, especially if you get the period of time where you've accumulated some money and it's actually grown over 10 or 15 or 20 years and you spend some of that money, you've never spent your own money in the first place. Yeah. It's, you're spending money that your money has made. Yeah. Which is when you look at the big the big wigs like uh, Robert Kiyosaki and um, Grant Cardone would be very would be a big advocate of it as you sh- you should be using cash flow or you should be using the results of your labors to buy the things that you want, not using the what you've made from your labor. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. Say we would have a few clients who maybe over a period of ten years, say from this, I'll give you ten years, invest a hundred grand, right? And so five years of maxing out on ISA. So you can put 20 grand a year in them, they're tax free. And then the, the 10 years 
following that, the hundred thousand turned into two hundred thousand mm. with no taxes. And so this one of these people specifically had over the period of another four or five years withdrawn about eighty grand, right? Yeah. And this was to help family and it was the, it was actually some medical stuff and they were withdrawing money to support the family and stuff like that. But they invested a hundred and it turned into two hundred and they've taken out eighty, but they still have a hundred and twenty. Yeah. So they've spent nearly eighty grand. It's not even theirs. You know what I mean? It's it, and that's somebody in that position is in a real position of comfort because mm. number one, they haven't spent any of their own money for a for a first, and number two, they still have another bit of a buffer because their money they haven't spent all the money that their money's earned. Yeah. And number three, if really worse comes to worse, then they have the money in the background that they originally invested, right? Yeah. Obviously, when you when you spend money out of of investments and things like that, it affects its ability to grow again in the future. Mm. But it's not always about the growth. It's not always about how much money can my money make. It's can I do I pay taxes on it? Is it giving me enough utility? Do I want to get to a certain point and then think, well, I want to start taking some money out of that to support my income and retirement? And that that's all the sort of stuff we do, right? Um, but coming back to the the affordability of things, like affordability is really important. And albeit in America, people are really good in finances and stuff like that, then credit card debt and debt itself becomes a really big issue. Yeah. Consumer debt becomes a big issue in America when people are just loving way beyond their means. Yeah. And I do think that people here in our culture, albeit that in some way or form, sometimes we may be overstretched, um, that we are not really blowing the roof off the house excessively when it comes to consumer debt, right? And that's another thing I wanted to talk about too is uh, good debt and bad debt hmm. because everybody just thinks the word debt is a bad thing and it's just yeah. so untrue. Yeah. People who are wealthy and people who are upper class, even people like Mark Zuckerberg, they have debt because it's beneficial. And and this is where the societal class system comes back because if you think, I buy a house on 20, I have a 35-year mortgage, the house will be paid off by 55. Interest rates three percent a year, and long-term inflation averages out of four percent a year. So, when you actually do the numbers in real terms, your house value is inflating more more than the actual cost of the debt that you have, right? So, why would you want to pay off your mortgage early whenever the house value is doing it for you? Yeah. So, people come and they also be like, "I've got a hundred grand left in my mortgage. I'm thirty. I want to have my mortgage clear by the time I'm thirty-five." And I'm like, "Well." you're going to throw all your money, your extra disposable income at your mortgage, right? And this all depends on what you earn too, but this is more a middle class thing. Uh, whenever you throw all the money that you have at your mortgage, mm. yes, you will come to a point where you have no mortgage anymore, but do you have nothing else? Yeah, There's nothing else there. You have a, a house with no mortgage on it, but you have no liquidity whatsoever. And so when people come to us and say, well, I earn... I have an extra thousand pound a month after I pay. I, I love my life. I know I'm I'm a, I'm not frugal, but I don't overspend. So this is what I've got left. I save some of it, but I'm thinking maybe I should put this on my mortgage. Maybe I should just start going mad and clearing off my mortgage, right? And it'll take ten years off it or whatever. And then our job really is to say, well, why don't you use the actual inflation of your house value to offset the cost of the debt because as long as the house prices go up in that manner over that 30 years, 
obviously this is where 2008 caused the whole handling but <laughs> um, as long as that logic applies by the time you come to the end of your mortgage in theory you won't have actually paid for it because the value is there in the house the equity um and obviously at the moment the house prices are inflating so high and you have people stuck on, or fixed at one and two percent mortgages mm. they're quads and they're laughing if the mortgage if the house prices keep going up in that manner they probably slow down a wee bit now but they will see a massive they'll get a big gap in how much the value of their house is inflated by versus the actual value of their mortgage if that makes sense yeah um so our job then is to go well yes let's get a look at your mortgage or whatever you can overpay by 10 or 20 percent a year or whatever it may be go for it overpay it through 250 pound a month of of your extra disposable income at the mortgage and that'll take a whole load of interest off and it'll take a whole load of years off not as not as quick necessarily as throwing all your disposable income at it mm. but then what do we do with the rest of it? Do we put three or four hundred quid away in the ANISA or two hundred on the ANISA, two hundred on the private pension? Yeah. And then over that next period of 15 years, they will have drastically reduced the amount of interest that they've paid and the time that they've been paying their mortgage. Mm. They'll be growing money on a personal basis, tax free. And they could also potentially have a pension that in the very beginning from day dot is getting tax relief. At 20% minimum yeah. so they're growing their money by 20% immediately when they put money on their pension mm. which in some way or form you could say well that can offset extra interest that I'm paying on my mortgage whatever way you want to spend that Yeah. and so if you pay your mortgage for another 5 years yes you might pay a wee bit more interest but at the end of it you'll have a house with no mortgage you could have 50 grand in an ISA and you could have another 30 or 40 grand or whatever it may be and a private pension on top of your workplace pension and look, I don't know about you, but I know where I'd rather be. Yeah, definitely. Uh, fair enough, you're sitting in a house with no mortgage when you're 40. But what do you have to do then to get to the point that that other person would be in? Yeah. Because the big, the big elephant in the room comes back into play, which is time. Time is a major player in, in this game. Um, and that's my view on it. I think that you have to use that to your advantage well, in terms of mortgages and I know I'm waffling on a wee bit here, but if you think about cars as well, you can buy a car just to have a car, or mm. you can buy a car because it actually can help you earn more money. Yeah. And so whenever you think about cars, there's HP and PCP and leasing and personal loans or whatever. My view on it would be personal loans is the best way to, to buy a car unless you're leasing it through your business or whatever, because HP and all is really expensive. But if you can, number one, buy a car that's going to maybe help you earn more money, brilliant. Yeah. And the other thing is, which is mad in this conversation comes up a lot, is if you buy a, a car for a couple of grand and it breaks down in a couple of months' time and you have to put a grand on it and then in another year you have to put another thousand pound on it and so on and so forth, you probably would have been better off taking on some debt and buying a half-decent car yeah. and that would have saved you all the time and hassle. Yeah. So... When it comes to the actual the management of debt, mortgages, good debt, as you know, or mm. sometimes business debt, as you know, can be good for, for growth and creating more money. But yeah. consumer debt itself can be managed as well. Yeah. Um, and as long as you don't carry massive balances on credit cards, that's not a bad thing. It's not a taboo subject at, at all, I don't think. Yeah. I'm happy to talk about debt to anybody, yeah. even though I don't manage it. But you know, the conversation and the rationale around it is really interesting. So, uh, that, I, I totally agree. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I, I know that was a lot there. Apologies. No, it, it it's great stuff. It um, it's definitely things that you could we could spend all day talking about. We could spend all day talking about it, but uh, again, it's it's all personal perspective. You know what I mean? It is perspective. Um, obviously, you know, I don't want to take up all your time, and I do appreciate the time you've you've given, Orin. Um, no but where can where can people get in contact with you? What's the best place to to reach out to you and see more of your resources and all these videos that you're doing? Best place will be Instagram. Mm. Definitely, my handle is just my name, which is Warren Coyle with two ends. Um, and as I said at the start, there's loads of content in the background getting filmed. Um, and I'll be rolling it out. And look, I'm going to try and put it in the most simplistic and basically layman's terms as possible, so anybody can understand it. That's really important to me. Yeah, Jorgen has no place in my life. It really doesn't. So that's the best place to get me. And as I say to everybody else. I'm always open to answering any questions anybody has anything. Yeah. No, it, it, it's clear you have a real good knack for just understanding finance on a very, you know, very easy to understand and digest manner. So that that, that passion comes across. Um, and no doubt that people get a really good value for it. But mm -hmm. thanks very much for coming on, Orn. I really appreciate it. Uh, no bother. Hey, thank you very much for having me. We can do another one too on the on the on the more specifics of investments and pensions and stuff like that yeah. down the line as well if you want no problem but yeah. i really appreciate it i know i'm actually just looking here an hour and a half eh? <laughs> but like, I, you know what i i could think it was 20 minutes for all i know i actually looked at my watch and i thought is it half 10 yeah. not half 11 <laughs> so i know i'd appreciate it lovely to chat to you as well i appreciate it i appreciate it thanks very much and i'll get chatting to you soon Thanks for listening to the Complete Performance Podcast with your host, Dr. Josh Williamson. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Oren today and can take away some helpful lessons to improve your overall complete health. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post it about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at, at Dr. Josh Williamson, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.